millions of your neighbors have given up hope that they're ever going to find true love. But it's entirely possible that people are looking for love in all the wrong places. So stick around, because in just a moment, I'm going to tell you why those people are wrong and what can be done to restore the kind of marital bliss that some of our grandparents used to enjoy. Welcome to the Voice of Prophecy. I'm your host, Sean Boonstra, and today I'm going to be talking about love and marriage and why it's different now than it used to be. So, if you're married or if you plan to be married, I think you're going to want to follow along to see if I'm onto something. Now, by way of disclaimer, I should probably tell you I'm not a marriage therapist. I'm not a marriage researcher. I'm not a social scientist. I'm just a regular married guy. And I'm a preacher who wishes that my generation could have the same kind of marriage success that used to exist a long time ago. That my generation could tap into some of the same richness that our grandparents and great-grandparents used to find in their married lives. And, And on top of all that, I'm also a bit of a realist. I mean, there's no way that I believe that life is actually anything like those romantic comedies that Hollywood keeps spitting out. In fact, I think that some of the expectations people have because of the entertainment industry might actually be part of the problem. They're setting us up for false expectations and for failure. So let's get started on what I actually want to talk about. Let's go back just a generation or two, and let's think about the way that our concept of marriage has changed since our grandparents walked down the aisle, or if you're in your 20s, maybe your great-grandparents. Since that time, we've had the 1960s. Now, personally, I think that some of the freewheeling attitudes of the 60s actually gave birth to some of our biggest problems in marriage and relationships today. Some people back then quite literally threw away the conventional ideas of morality, and they started treating marriage as this outmoded hangover from a less enlightened time. They actually called it slavery, barbarism, an institution from the Dark Ages, And they were rejecting the way their parents lived. What did they do instead? They started to bounce from one relationship to the next. They packed their bags if things got uncomfortable or if they just got bored and wanted somebody else. Instead of making lifelong commitments, people were making just-for-now commitments, shacking up instead of signing on for life. Lifelong marriage over the years has been made to seem unreasonable. Monogamy has been made to seem well, unsophisticated. And the development of new methods of birth control made sleeping around seem a little less risky. And the fact that so many people were doing this, so many people were living with the new morality, it just made it more socially acceptable. But then fast forward to right now, to our generation. And here we are roughly 40 or 50 years later, a generation that's been raised under their new morality. You and I are the children that came from the 60s, at least my generation is. And now we're middle-aged and we're raising families of our own. We have five decades of hindsight. And I think maybe it's time to go back and assess this whole free love movement and ask an all-important question. Did the sexual revolution really make our world a better place? 
And listen, I mean, I completely understand that even asking that kind of question makes me seem like a Luddite, makes me seem like I'm from yesterday. It's taboo. I mean, how dare we question these new freedoms? Only prudes and cavemen question the sexual revolution. But just in case you're rolling your eyes, before you do that, before you write this off as another preacher who hates sex, let me assure you, I do not hate sex. Not even close. And I know my kids will be horrified to hear me say that, but I don't hate it. I do think, though, that it is fair now to go back and assess what we've done to our society. I mean, that's what a reasonable, rational society does. We take stock of ourselves, and we ask if we're really doing the best we can for our civilization. So I think after 40-plus, 50 years, it's only right that we compare the new morality to the old morality and see if we've really taken ourselves to the next level or if we've lost something valuable. Now, the sexual revolution certainly has changed the way we live. The world we're in now is not your grandpa's world. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, roughly 41% of babies born today are born out of wedlock, and that's a six-fold increase since 1960. So clearly, something has changed. And since the 60s, sexually transmitted diseases, or STDs, have become killers, not just here but all over the world. They don't just make you sick, they might actually take your life. And now they're diseases that are being passed around by kids at school. The children who used to play marbles and build soapbox cars now post compromising pictures of themselves to the Internet. They're doing the unimaginable. And according to one study I saw a little while ago from the Centers for Disease Control, I think it was a study from 2010, it said that STDs among teenagers jumped by 53% in the decade between 1997 and 2007. That's 53% in 10 years. And to put that in perspective, to give you an idea of how big that jump really is, it means that one out of four teenage girls in the United States, one out of four, now has a sexually transmitted disease. That is not the way it used to be. I mean, we have always had problems as the human race. There's always been a sex trade. There have always been people willing to throw out traditional morality. There have been other civilizations before ours that experimented with moral looseness like we have. This isn't something new, but it is big, and the problem's growing. The world we live in today is absolutely different from the one that our grandparents lived in. So maybe it's time to go back and ask some tough but honest questions. Maybe it's time to go back and compare our parents' generation to our grandparents' generation and ask ourselves, which generation got it right? Did we really do the right thing when we threw our grandparents' values in the trash? It's probably time for our generation to start questioning because I don't know about you, but I'm not ready to take the free love generation's word for all of this. I've just seen far too many social experiments that fall apart. I've seen far too many people who were absolutely certain they knew what they were doing when they started tinkering around with society. And then a few years down the road, we find out they were absolutely wrong. So maybe the first question we should ask is whether or not we're any happier than we used to be. Have we really improved things? And I know that I always fall back on old TV shows to make my point, but it's kind of a vivid example. Today, everybody makes fun of the Andy Griffith Show and other shows like it 
because they just seem so simplistic to us. And we tell ourselves nobody really lived like that. People in the 1950s didn't have white picket fences and home-cooked meals. And, and it's true, they had plenty of problems in the 1950s. It was not utopia. But at the same time, we should probably also notice that our grandparents' generation at least had some idea of what they were shooting for. They had ideals. They had a code of morality. And by contrast, our generation seems too scared to suggest that traditional models of the family had any value at all. We don't want to sound unenlightened. We don't want to be called bigoted. But really, I, I do think it's perfectly fair to question what we've done. I think it's perfectly fair to ask if we weren't being just a little too hasty when we started dismantling the traditional family. I mean, why were we so quick to throw away the model that worked for us for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years? Just the other day, I came across this study by Dr. Lucille Ostertag, and I hope I'm saying her name right, Lucille Ostertag. And the results of her study were amazing. She works at the Italian Institute of Social Sciences. And a few years ago, back in 2002, she claimed, now listen to this, she claimed that spouses who cheat on each other are more likely to stay together. And yes, you heard me right. She was actually promoting infidelity as good for your marriage. Quote, this is what she says. Some of the strongest unions I studied included spouses who were each involved in repeated extramarital affairs throughout the relationship. Unquote. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that unbelievable. I wasn't reading Red Book. This wasn't Cosmo. This was supposedly an academic study. And I got to say, what? Cheating makes your marriage stronger? Really? When have you ever seen that work? I mean, that's the kind of stuff they were saying at wife-swapping parties back in the 60s and the 70s. But who really believes that infidelity is good for your marriage? This is crazy stuff. But it's nothing compared to what she says next. So I want you to hang tight. I'm going to take a short break, and I'll be right back so we can go for a walk together into the world of the bazaar. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we are back. And just before the break, I was talking about this study that came out of Italy that suggested that cheating is actually good for your marriage. And that's kind of surprising, but if that's not surprising enough, the author's study goes on to offer a set of guidelines to help you cheat on your spouse. If you want to break your wedding vows, she says, then follow these simple rules. And what are the rules? Well, the first one. Make sure you're having an affair with someone outside of your own area code. Why? Because it lowers the chances you'll get caught. Now, here's what I want you to ask. If this is supposedly good for your marriage, if this is going to build the marriage relationship you have, then why would you need to hide it from your spouse? I mean, why would you care if you got caught? Unless you sense it might destroy your home. It's crazy. Rule number two, never ever tell your spouse what you're doing because apparently the less they know, the better, which makes me ask the question again. If this is good for your marriage, what's the problem? Why not just talk about your affairs over dinner? 
Rule number three, refuse to feel guilty. But of course, if cheating is actually good for you, you've got to ask why in the world you'd feel guilty at all. Except maybe somehow you're hardwired to know that breaking a vow to someone else is wrong. Rule number four, keep your extramarital affairs brief and never keep contact with your flings. Otherwise, you run the risk of hurting someone's feelings. Now listen, maybe I'm missing something here, but how in the world does any of that strengthen a marriage? I mean, just the fact that you have to keep your partner in the dark, just the fact that you have to suppress guilt tells me there's something wrong with this. If you have to violate your conscience to cheat, if you have to ignore feelings of guilt, then it's wrong. It's not going to help your marriage. Believe me, it's going to kill it. And it's going to hurt a lot of people along the way and leave you with emotional scars that can last a lifetime. And I'm guessing, when I was reading out those rules for infidelity, that your gut told you it was wrong. And that's what I want to focus on. If we really believe that sexual anarchy is good, if we really think that the sexual revolution is the way to go, then we shouldn't be the least bit surprised by this woman's suggestions. And her study shouldn't even make the headlines. But there it was in the headlines. Why? Because it shocked us. And that's because something inside of us still tells us this is wrong. Something inside us still has not given up on the idea of marriage, of permanence. We're still hoping it's true. We still hope that a man and a woman can find happiness for a lifetime. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a market for all those romantic comedies. But we watch them because it rings a bell. It makes us hope there's something in us that wants the sexual revolution to be wrong. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus made a statement about marriage that resonates with almost everybody at a basic level. It's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. Now, just before I read this, let me give you a little background. This is a story involving the Pharisees, a religious sect known for their strict adherence to traditional values. And they come to Jesus with a question about divorce. So we'll pick up the story in verse 3. The Bible says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, now let me point something out about this. You and I talk about easy divorce as if it's some new idea. And it is easier than it used to be, at least in our society over the recent decades. But in Jesus' day, divorce was really easy. I mean, if you happen to be a man. There were no prenups. There was no drawn-out custody battle. There were no assets for the lawyers to divide. Men in those days, 2,000 years ago, they could just divorce their wives at will. In fact, there was one school of thought that actually taught back then that if your wife burned your supper, it was grounds for divorce. So ancient Jewish law recognized that marriages sometimes fall apart and that sometimes divorce is inevitable. But in Jesus' day, divorce was ridiculously easy. I mean, all you had to do is say three times in a public place, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. So the Pharisees are thinking about this, and they bring the question to Jesus. And something about the Pharisees tells me they don't really care. They're just using marriage and divorce as a way to humiliate Jesus in front of his audience. But they did raise this question. So we get to hear Jesus speak on the subject. And as always, his response is brilliant. He shows us God's ideal for marriage. Matthew 19, verse 4. 
And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, now this is the Judeo-Christian model of marriage. So, if you don't believe in God, this might not make much sense to you. But then again, maybe it will. Maybe it will resonate with you at a very fundamental level. Maybe this will trigger something that seems right. So, let's take a look at how Jesus described the marriage covenant. The way some people talk about marriage, you get the impression that marriage was our idea that at some point in the distant past we decided that there was an advantage to legally binding yourself to another individual. We think, in this day and age, in terms of evolution, that human beings slowly became social animals over millions of years, and that the family unit was created by us simply because it was advantageous for survival. But Jesus underlines something very important. Marriage isn't a human convention. Marriage wasn't our idea. It was God's idea, and he intended that human beings become intertwined so completely that they actually become one person. And that might actually explain why divorce is so excruciating, why some people speak about it like an amputation. It's because you're taking two people who became one person, and then you're ripping that one person in half. So why would God want this kind of intimacy? Why would he want us to take this kind of risk? The way we joke and grumble about marriage, you almost get the idea that getting too close isn't a good idea. But God says it's an excellent idea, and you have to wonder why. Why is he a fan of marriage? Why would God design this institution? Why bond two people together so closely? Well, for starters, the Bible says in 1 John 3, verse 4, that God by his own nature is love. And he's not the hallmark, my heart is fluttering kind of love, but real principled selfless love. The kind of love that Jesus demonstrated when he willingly gave his life to save us. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So, the Bible teaches that God is love, and we also know that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy chapter 6. But at the same time, that one God turns out to be three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if we had lots of time today, we could explore that whole topic, but it's not really the point of today's show. Our topic is marriage. So, let's take these ideas. God is love, and God, even though he's three people, is one God. And I want you to apply those ideas to the human race. In the life and teachings of Jesus, we find this very special relationship between God the Father and God the Son. I mean, just listen to Jesus praying in John 17. He's speaking to his Father. He says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's John 17, 21. As you listen to Jesus talk to his Father, you start to get the sense that God is all about being one. And that's because Real love lives for something other than self. The Father and the Son live for each other, and in marriage, God intends for us to show that relationship to the world. He intends for us to show the world 
the relationship the members of the Godhead have. He intends for us to model it. He intends for us to get a taste of what they have in heaven. Jesus said, don't forget this, in marriage, we are no longer two, but one flesh. Our marriages are supposed to reflect the intimacy that God has himself. Our marriages are meant to be a school in which we learn the love of God. So try to imagine what that would be like if it actually happened. If two people became so intertwined that you could barely tell them apart. In a moment, I'll come back and talk about just that. Stick around. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if your life has lost its meaning, just moving from one task to another without any answers to the really important questions in life? Like, is it possible to have a fresh start and to find real happiness? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for to this and to all of life's big questions. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we are back from our break. You are listening to the Voice of Prophecy. My name is Sean Boonstra, and today we are talking about love and marriage. You know, Jesus taught that you and I were supposed to demonstrate the intimate oneness that God the Father enjoys with God the Son, and the intimacy that both of them enjoy with God the Spirit. When you get married, Jesus taught, two people are no longer two, but one flesh. And we looked at that in Matthew 19, verse 6. But of course, God is also a realist. He recognizes that in a sinful world, in a broken world, marriages do fall apart. So, so when the Pharisees asked Jesus why Moses allowed divorce, here's what Jesus said. This is Matthew 19, verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. You see, God is aware of what's going on in this world. He knows that marriages sometimes come unglued. So if you find yourself in a situation where your marriage has failed, I don't want you to despair and think that God has given up on you. You don't have to think you're a second-class citizen just because you're divorced. God is completely aware of what happened, and he knows that things don't always go well. I can assure you, God still loves you, and he still wants you to have an abundant life and a meaningful relationship with him. So, if your marriage has fallen apart, or it is falling apart, you can take a deep breath. Your life is by no means over. But, but at the same time, there is something I do want you to notice. Jesus is perfectly honest about dissolving a marriage. He doesn't try to sugarcoat the problem. He says that rampant divorce, all the way back then, and now today, Jesus says it is the result of sin. It happens because you and I have hard hearts. It happens when people don't love each other selflessly. And again, don't beat yourself up if you did love someone selflessly, but your partner didn't return the love. That's not the point I'm making. I do, though, want to put this all in context. Back in the 1960s, people talked about free love, open relationships. 
But the sexual revolution actually took us down a path that has ended with a 50% divorce rate and nearly half of our kids being born out of wedlock. If a lack of love leads to the breakdown of the family the way Jesus says, then just what kind of love was that free love in the 60s? Was it the same selfless love that creates an unbreakable lifetime bond? Or was it actually self-indulgence? A love that puts your own wants, your own needs, your own desires ahead of everything else. When we started to break down social norms, did we really do it because we had other people's interests at heart? Or was it because we wanted nothing to stand in the way of self-gratification? I think after 40 or 50 years of living with the results, that's a fair question. Now, if you don't want to face up to it, okay. But I do want to face it. And I think if we're honest, we can admit that things got worse after the sexual revolution. I mean, let's take a look at what we actually know about marriage and family now, a full generation after the revolution. Was giving up on marriage actually good for us? One study I came across just recently revealed that men who marry actually get drunk less often. They're better men. But interestingly, just living with someone doesn't have the same effect. It's the lifetime bond, the lifetime commitment that makes the difference. Because two people become one in a very real way. And now everything you do impacts someone else very deeply. The Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health recently published findings that married people also have a lower risk of mortality. They reported that both men and women tend to live longer if they're married. And according to the same study, cancer treatments are 18 to 17 percent more effective when the patient has a spouse. So where does that come from? And why does the opposite happen when you dissolve a marriage? I mean, the risk of suicide doubles for men when they get divorced. Children are at a much higher risk for substance abuse when their parents split up. But the same thing doesn't happen when a parent dies. It's the divorce that makes the difference. So there's something fundamentally traumatic about dissolving a marriage. It has real, tangible effects on the whole family. Marriage is supposed to teach us something about Christ's love for us. A love that persists even when times are hard. A love that doesn't rely on feelings, but on principle. Throw your marriage away, and you'll never see what God intended to teach you. Bounce from one fling to the next, and you will never learn the mind and heart of God. At least, not the way you were supposed to. The evidence is so strong that dissolving marriages is not a good idea. And the evidence is so strong that there's something to it, that there's something to making it last, that there's something about abandoning yourself to another person so completely that the two become one. I think we've made a huge mistake. We've thrown away one of the greatest gifts God has ever given the human race. Marriage is an institution that came all the way from the Garden of Eden, and it was meant not as a curse, not as an obligation, not as a burden. God meant it as a gift. A gift. It's one of the greatest things He's given us. So, so let me ask you just this one question, and then I'll let you go for today. Have you sensed there's supposed to be something more to your relationship? Have you sensed that relationships are somehow sacred, then maybe your heart is moving you in the right direction. I can guarantee one thing. Open a Bible, study what God says about it, put together a godly marriage and include him in the process, and I know you'll be delighted with the things that God has in store. You know, I've looked at 
two different generations now. My grandparents' generation, where the marriages went for 50, 60, 65, 70 years. And then I looked at the next generation, where the marriages went three, four, or five. And I can tell you which one I want. I've been happily married now for a little over 20 years, and I can tell you that all of God's promises are true. They don't remove all the challenges. They don't remove all of the struggles that a couple might have. But they sure make it easier, and I can tell you that God's promises are good, and He intended for you to find something wonderful in a completely selfless, loving relationship. Thanks for listening. This has been the Voice of Prophecy. My name, Sean Boonstra. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.